Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I think as parents, we assume that kids are going to just know the right way to do things. You have to teach them first and then train them by teaching them to do it over and over again until they actually get it. Imagine trying to teach your child how to tie his shoes without the practice principle. If the practice principle is vital for teaching such morally neutral tasks as Mm -hmm. tying shoes, how much more important is it for training children in Christ-like character? I speak to parents all the time who come up to me and they see what's happening, but they don't know what to do. And I just want to stand up and say, you can do this. Here is a solution. This is Yvette Hampton, host of the Schoolhouse Rocked podcast. Join us each week for a new episode as we offer encouragement and resources on biblical discipleship from popular speakers and authors, as well as parents just like you and me. Find out more at schoolhouserocked.com or listen anywhere you find your favorite podcast. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 11, The Waiting is the Hardest Part. Today's proverb comes from Pericles. I'll read it twice. Wait for the wisest of counselors. Time. Wait for the wisest of counselors. Time. The quote is not, time is the wisest of counselors. Even though it is, even though time is the wisest of counselors, that's not what the quote is. The quote is, wait for the wisest of counselors. It's a command. It's an imperative, not just a declaration that time is wisest. A few questions immediately open themselves up 
to the quote, how do you wait for time? How does time counsel? How does waiting counsel? There are a number of ancient proverbs that describe time as a wise counselor, or time as a counselor, or time as wisdom, or waiting as wisdom. But only this quote from Pericles combines all the elements of those proverbs. In the same way that I prefer life goes on to such as life, I prefer this iteration of the quote over a number of others. Because it's an imperative. Because it's a command, not just a description of the world. I've been thinking about this idea a lot over the last several months as I've been teaching Paradise Lost. I've been thinking about the connection between counsel and patience. In book nine of Paradise Lost, when Satan comes to Eve, he offers her a number of reasons why she should eat the forbidden fruit. It's a spectacular speech. All of my modern literature students memorize it. And in that speech, Satan provides a dozen different reasons why Eve should eat the fruit. And the first reason he gives her is one of the most enduring lies of Satan or the most enduring deceptions of Satan. Satan opens up the temptation with these four words. You shall not die. Of course, you know the story. The serpent appears to Eve. The serpent can talk. Eve is very impressed. Says, how'd you do that? The serpent says, there's a special fruit that enables beasts to talk. What could it do for one who could already speak? Eve says, take me to it. So they go, and when Eve sees the forbidden tree, she says, you might have spared me the trip. I can't eat of that one. We can't eat of that one, my husband and I. We've been told that on the day we eat of it, we will die. Satan says, you shall not die. How should you? By the fruit? It gives you life to knowledge. This is one of Satan's most effective lines of deception to this day. Now, of course, today Satan doesn't say you shall not die. There's a slightly amended version of this claim that Satan makes today. 
And I would put this lie of Satan's third in terms of popularity, effectiveness, high return on a relatively small investment of words. I think that Satan's most effective lie, all time number one, is no one's going to find out. As soon as you hear those words, you've got to run. No one's going to find out. Run. Don't stick around to quote scripture. Just run. Now, if you stick around like a fool, what you're going to say is, well, God will know. No one will know. God will know. And then Satan provides his second most popular lie. Line of deception. Which is, God will forgive. Which is true. But it's deception nonetheless. And if you stick around, even after Satan says, God will know, but he'll forgive. The next lie Satan uses is, you shall not die. Now, the modern version of this is not, you shall not die, but it's not going to kill you. That's what Satan says today. It's not going to kill you. Now, when Satan says, you shall not die to Eve, there may be an assumed today at the end of this statement. You shall not die today. Maybe he means you're never going to die. Elsewhere in the temptation, he tells her she will die. But the death she'll suffer is only a doorway into a rebirth, her rebirth as a god. So you shall die, perhaps, by putting off human to put on gods. Death to be wished, though threatened, which no worse than this can bring. If Satan is implying when he says you shall not die, that you shall not die today. Or when Satan tells us today it won't kill you, there's a sense in which he's right. Because Eve will eat of the fruit, and then if her life goes on for a period of time roughly similar to her husband's, Eve will eat and she'll live for another 900 years before the promised punishment is finally meted out. What it won't kill you often means is you're going to have time to repent of this. Have your fun time now. Make amends for it later. Have you never heard of the thief on the cross who repented in his final hour? Have you not heard other such stories? You can live beyond this sin, beyond this crime. Repent later. Will God forgive you? Yes. Now, on the subject, Christ addresses you shall not die. He addresses it won't kill you. And Christ addresses it 
In a proverb, he addresses it in sermons and stories also. But he addresses it in this proverb. Don't be fooled. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. Wait for the wisest of counselors, time. I don't want to lose sight of my point of contemplation here, though this really is going to take a kind of circuitous route back to this quote from Pericles. Don't be fooled, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. Now, when a modern man hears this proverb, he is at a unique disadvantage for interpreting it. Because modern men don't sow anything. They don't reap anything. The average modern man has never planted a seed in the ground, ever. He's never plucked a piece of fruit off of a tree, ever. Which means that when most modern men encounter this proverb of Christ, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap, They just think it means what goes around comes around, or you're going to get caught. I think that's what most modern men think the proverb means. Don't be fooled. God is not mocked. You'll get caught. And we've seen these films, crime stories, stories about the perfect crime, which is not actually the perfect crime. We've seen these Hitchcockian thrillers, the perfect murder. And we've seen caper stories, one last one, Ocean's Eleven, all that. And that's the lens through which we interpret this claim of Christ. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. And we think there is no perfect crime. You're going to get caught. There is no perfect crime. Crime itself is a flaw of the intellect. Thus, no perfect crime is possible. There will always be evidence. You'll confess the crime in your sleep. You'll confess the crime out of a guilty conscience. That's what we think this means. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. Which is really terribly unfortunate, because that's not what this proverb means. Now, for someone who has grown up on a farm, the proverb is far more terrifying. If you've grown up on a farm, you've probably noted how far the sowing of a seed is from the reaping of the harvest. Depending on what you're sowing, you may have to wait for years. If you sow a handful of apple seeds today, it will be 2025 before you eat any fruit of those seeds. That's a long time that elapses between the sowing of a seed and the reaping of the harvest of that seed. And 
the fruit looks nothing like the seed. It's almost like a magic trick. You take this small, hard, brown, nut-shaped seed, and you put it in the ground. And you come back years later, and there's a tree. Now, maybe there's some tending of it in the meantime, but maybe not. Maybe you plant the seed and you come back years later having forgotten about it. There's a tree growing. And if you planted apple seeds, you planted something profoundly small. There might be a thousand apples on that tree when you come back and they're all large and luminous and red. Most Americans grow up believing what a man sows that actually means if you sin, you'll get caught, which is simply not true. People get away with all manner of sins. Now, you never get away with getting away with it. But people get away with all kinds of stuff. All the time. Our imaginations are diseased, though. And so we cannot conceive of anything worse than getting caught. And what's more, when you sin and you get caught... The punishment for getting caught often bears an interesting resemblance to the crime itself. The punishment is a kind of undoing of the effects of the crime. So, say a student at the school for a prank uh, shuffles through a bunch of mud and then tracks it all over the floor. Uh, the punishment for such a crime might be, well, you've got to pay to have the floors cleaned. And if it's carpet that must be cleaned of deep caked in mud, could be quite costly. And so there's a kind of symmetry between the crime and the punishment. You created a huge mess, now you must clean it up. That's what happens when you get caught. Or think of any of the Old Testament punishments for theft. If you steal, you will be required to pay back what you've stolen, and a whole lot more, too. The punishment fits the crime only if the crime is caught. Only if the criminal is discovered. But that's not the sowing of a seed that's later reaped. If I found a student who had dragged in a bunch of mud all over the carpet of the classroom, and I told him, 
you're going to have to clean this or pay for it to be cleaned. I wouldn't say as a kind of Aesop's like moral, you know, whatever you sow, that shall you reap. That's not really sowing. There's no seed you can sow and reap four hours later. That's a different kind of crime that needs a different sort of moral or fable or proverb to explain it, getting caught, dragging in a bunch of mud on purpose. In the same way that an apple seed looks almost nothing like an apple tree, the effects of sin do not often look like sin itself. The fruit of sloth does not look like sloth. If you plant the seed of sloth at 15, the harvest of sloth at 20 looks nothing like it. If you plant the seed of lust at the age of 15, you might not eat of that tree until you're 30. And the effects of that sin will look nothing like the sin itself. Now, what I'm suggesting here is true of vice, but it's true of virtue as well. If you are obedient, if you are pious at 15, you might not really eat of that tree until you're 30, 35. There might be some kind of immediate sort of benefit to studying hard. You pass the test, you pass the class, you don't get grounded, you get to join the basketball team. That's not reaping fruit, though. That's just to the victor goes the spoils. The real fruit of piety and diligence at the age of 15 will pay off when you're looking for a wife at 25. You will eat the fruit of lust from a seed of lust planted at 15 when you're looking for a wife as well. Now, what this means is that oftentimes the warnings against sin seem pretty high-handed. They seem pretty hyperbolic. And this is something that Satan capitalizes on in Paradise Lost. You shall not die. It's a a piece of fruit. It's a small transgression. You're going to die from eating a piece of fruit. Now, to this day, Satan loves to capitalize on the fact that the fruit of sin looks nothing like sin itself. And there's a long time that passes, and when sin comes back, it comes back in a graduated, monstrous form, which makes it nearly indistinguishable from those early vices. So when cautions against the long-term effects of sin are given, 
They seem so far-fetched. They seem so far out. Especially cautions against uh, sin of lust given in Book of Proverbs. Solomon equates lust with starvation at one point. To which the incredulous mind, the mind which is unwilling to wait for the wisest of counselors, says, come on. You're going to starve because you lust? That's absurd. That's some trumped-up horror story a finger-wagging authority figure delivered to keep you in line. Now, what this means is that in order to connect sin with the fruit of sin, you have to have a very well-formed imagination. A Strong, powerful imagination is necessary in order to see how the small, brown, nut-like shaped seed of lust or sloth or pride ultimately turns into adultery, murder, assault. Abuse. A very well-formed imagination is necessary in order to see in the mind's eye how such small beginnings have terrible ends or wonderful ends. I don't want to say that this is only about vice. This is true of virtue as well. If you are honest with people, they will trust you. If they trust you, they will entrust you with huge responsibilities. They will give you money. They will give you land. They will give you discretionary time and power. They will give you the benefit of the doubt. That all uh, becomes the life of a successful adult who merely does not cheat on tests at 15. But a well-formed imagination is needed in order to see the fruit of sin as being connected with sin itself. Now, this puts our age again at a unique disadvantage because our age is obsessed with entertainments that spoil the imagination by gratifying the senses immediately. We tend to not see present tragedies as the result of past vices. It seems strange to most young people that a small sin like lust or sloth would have lasting consequences because a sin is a thing that you either get away with or don't get away with. That's the way that young people conceive of sin. Sin is a thing that you get caught doing or not caught doing. You either get away with it or get caught. 
And the young person often believes, and adults carry this faulty belief into their old age, that the worst effects of a sin are judicial. The worst effects of a sin are getting caught. The average young man cannot conceive of lust having any worse repercussion than getting caught. So many of our sins are now performed online. We tend to believe that repenting of our sins is like hitting clear history in a web browser. Man, it's fascinating that your internet history is called your internet history. Nothing. In the last 50 years, nothing has skewed our understanding of time, quite like the term internet history. There's probably some foolish pastor out there right now preaching that grace means God hitting clear history on the web browser of your life. And so when we get away with our sins, we think that we've gotten away with them. When we're not caught, we think that's it. We don't think now comes the real waiting. Five, ten years down the line, I will see just what this meant. And when people's lives fall apart, because we live in such a sentimental age, when someone's life falls apart, we are not apt to teach young people that the falling apart of a life is the result of small sins in youth and young manhood or young, the life of a young woman. When someone's life falls apart, we tell our children, well, just unlucky. Or we don't want to heap judgment on somebody. And so we refuse to make an object lesson of anyone whose life has fallen apart. We don't say, that's the product, that's the produce, that's the fruit of sin. We say, well, your Uncle Tom's going through a tough time right now. We all go through a tough time. Maybe even we're a little loath to believe that Uncle Tom's sins or Aunt Jenny's sins ultimately resulted in this failed marriage, trip to jail, attempted suicide. We want to think the best of everyone, which means that as opposed to preaching against sin, we just hope no one sins. And when they do, we make as though it was all a misunderstanding. But Pericles says, wait for the wisest of counselors. Time. Now, there's a way that you can jumpstart this. Which is by listening to people who are older than you. 
Listening to old people is a way of waiting for time. Don't listen to people your own age. They're just as stupid as you are. If you're in your 30s, don't get advice from people in their 30s. If you're in your 20s, don't get advice from people in your 20s. It's not as though something magical happens when you turn 30 or when you turn 20. There's no magic age at which you finally attain the wisdom to counsel people who are as old as you. It's just as stupid for somebody who's 35 to get advice from somebody who's 35 as it is for teenagers to give moral and ethical advice to other teenagers. Now, I'm not suggesting you never ask your friends their opinion on your decisions. And I'm not saying that friends don't tell friends, hey, don't drive home, take a cab. You're just as dumb as I am. I'm not suggesting this. But what I am suggesting as a career teacher is that I'm always exasperated when I hear sophomores asking other sophomores for advice on women. I'm always amazed to hear them counsel one another on complex matters concerning where they will go to college, whether they will move out of their parents' home at 18. You don't know what you're talking about. But the same is true of people in their 20s. The same is true of people in their 30s. You've got to ask people who are at least in the next stage of life. You've got to ask people. If you're engaged, you've got to get advice from people who are married. If you're married, you've got to get advice from people with kids. If you've got a kid, you've got to get advice from people with many kids. Got many kids, get advice from people who have all their children already left the home. You've got to talk with people who are in the next stage. They've seen farther than you. That's a way of accepting the counsel of time. Other people have seen farther than you. They've lived longer than you. They've seen the repercussions of people's actions. The world is full of people doing stupid things that have not caught up with them yet. The world is full of people who are doing a lousy job raising their kids, but are nonetheless bragging about how well their kids have turned out. No talking to those people. The world's full of people who are scraping the bottom of the barrel to get ahead, and for the moment, it's working. The world is full of people whose arrogance and false humility has granted them profound social purchasing power. For the moment. The world is full of flatterers whose flattery is working right now. The people whose lives seem unsustainable usually are. The suspicions that you have that someone's happiness can't last usually right. But it's so seductive to base your own actions on what's working for other people right now. We don't want to wait for time. 
Because waiting for time means we can't act right now. It means we have to be patient. We have to be silent. We have to sit on our hands. And listening to people who are older than you requires patience as well. Old people give advice you don't like. And they give advice that you don't agree with. People who have seen more than you never tell you what you want to hear. You always want the easier route to work out. And people who are ahead of you typically tell you, no, no such thing as a free lunch. The easy route will not pay off here. You can keep your kids entertained with TV shows this afternoon. You will pay for it 10 years from now. The most common command in all of Proverbs is listen to my words. It's a command that is repeated an embarrassing, aggravating number of times. Hear my words, listen to my words. My son hearken to my words over and over again. It's the hardest thing that Solomon asks his son to do. There's nothing harder than obeying old people. But wait for the wisest of counselors, time. Speak to people who are full of time. You're not full of time. People who are older than you are full of time. They are the waiting. The people in the next stage of life are the waiting you have yet to do. So you can talk to them. can travel through time into the future and see the ends of all the things you're doing now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 